Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by synthetic biologist, futurist, and author Logan Thrasher Collins, who is also the lead scientist at Conduit Computing and is a graduate student in biomedical engineering at Washington University in St. Louis. Logan, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Trent. I'm really happy to be here as well, and I'm excited to talk about the future. Absolutely. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about how you got into synthetic biology? Because while you cast a pretty wide net, it seems fair to say that that's the center of what you work on. So tell us about your background, your interests, and how you came to work on synthetic biology. Right. So I started off working in synthetic biology when I was in high school. Um, actually, to some degree, one might say that I, I started off in middle school because I started thinking about these concepts at that point in time. Uh, when I was in middle school, I began thinking about uh, cancer research and how one might apply things like synthetic biology and nanotechnology to cancer. Um, but it was really in high school that, my, that I actually started doing research in a formal context in that I joined a scientific research laboratory at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, so the way I started there was that I, I ended up um, coming up with an idea for treating antibiotic-resistant infection. This idea was centered around the concept of aggregating antimicrobial peptides, which is essentially a, uh, a, a way of producing chaos inside of bacteria that destabilizes their cellular system and causes them to die. And so uh, in, essentially, I, I started developing this concept. I joined a research laboratory with my idea, and I, I began doing research. Uh, I, I first gained a proof of concept result my sophomore year of high school after I designed a de novo antimicrobial peptide, which aggregated disrupted bacterial homeostasis and killed target bacteria. Um, and then beyond that, I, I began working uh, in in on expanding this concept, I developed a bacterial conjugation-based delivery system. Bacterial conjugation is a process by which one bacterium will transfer DNA to another bacterium uh, through a uh, intercellular junction. And I and so I took advantage of this process, again, focusing on the theme of synthetic biology, and engineered it to transfer my gene, the gene that was designed uh, to produce this antimicrobial peptide, uh, from donor bacteria to recipients. And the way that I was able to prevent the donors from producing the peptide and harming themselves was that I was able to uh, essentially make the gene dormant in the donor bacteria and active in the recipient bacteria by using what's called a recipient-specific promoter. And I won't go into the details of how that, uh, how that functions for the sake of uh, not spiraling into ever deeper details on the, uh, technical, uh, the, the technicalities of the project. But suffice to say that it allows for targeting of the desired bacterial strain that you want to kill. Um, so that was really my birth into the synthetic biology world. 
Uh, during undergrad, I further I gathered further data on that on that research, um, made it more rigorous, made sure that it was working the way that it was intended to, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then I eventually published a paper in the journal ACS Biochemistry on the research. Um, so that was that was really how I got into synthetic biology. From there, I expanded. I started working in neuroscience as well, but I maintained sort of this synthetic biology nanotechnology theme throughout uh, in that I was designing, uh, I, I was actually working on mapping the brain for the purpose of trying to develop at the very least an early stage platform for, uh, for uncovering how the brain works in greater detail through the mapping of neuronal morphology and connectivity. And the way that I was doing this was, like I said, again, uh, applying this synthetic biology theme, this nanotechnology theme, and bringing, uh, and bringing together antibodies and gold nanoparticles as a way of creating a targeted contrast agent for x-ray microtomography of brain tissue. Basically, what that means is just that I was using nanotechnology and uh, synthetic biology to design a way of imaging brain tissue at a very high resolution and very quickly so that it could be better uh, better mapped for the purpose of uncovering uh, un uncovering more about how we work, who we are, and how we might engineer ourselves. So, so, so your, your motivations for doing this, you were trying to solve specific problems, I would assume. Um, were you driven by specific problems that uh, were kind of in the background there? Yes. So um, with regards to the neuroscience research, I, I definitely did have sort of multiple stages in mind. And I'm not, I'm not currently working in neuroscience, but I intend to come back to it at some point later. Uh, but as to your question regarding the problems that I was trying to approach, there's sort of two separate stages to that because there's the short-term problems and then there's the very long-term problems. And I was focusing on both. Uh, I was trying to create a general experimental platform to address both of these short-term and these long-term problems. In the short-term, this could be used to address uh, challenges of, of neurodegenerative disease, um, mental illness, uh, uh, neural circuits that may be um, that may be useful for constructing biomimetic robotics, and uh, for perhaps inspiring artificial intelligence algorithms that may be able to better mimic what the brain does. So it it is a, a wide array of problems. In the very long term, I'm interested in computational neuroscience that may be able to take advantage of this type of brain mapping, this connectomics and, and uh, utilize it to actually create whole brain emulations, probably first of insects and then of, of mammals, uh, which would be able to, at a much more integrative level, address the challenges of, um, of, of neuroscience in that you, you would have this platform to, to essentially mimic what a brain does using an alternate substrate. And of course, this also has some implications uh, for for some some more uh, out there kinds of things, such as uh, creating artificial intelligence that so closely mimics humans that it is able to perhaps even create copies of individual people. Um, 
and obviously this comes with some implications which are are which lead to complex ethical questions um, I actually wrote a science fiction story, uh, which was recently published in a magazine called the Centropic or Oracle, uh, which published it in both text and audio form. And this science fiction story dealt with sort of the, the emotional and uh, uh, philosophical implications of what it would be like for a, shall we say, whole brain emulation of a human, of a specific human to know that he or she is a copy of the original and to have to come to terms with that. And um, so I definitely don't have all the answers here. I do believe that this type of thing may be very, may lead to a lot of benefits in down the road, but it definitely comes with challenges as well. So I'm, I should add the caveat though, that I do think that uh, whole brain emulation or um, uh, this type of mind uploading kind of thing in humans, I do think that that is actually quite far off. Uh, I, I earlier earlier on in life, I, I had uh, had estimates for it to be sooner, but uh, I actually think that even for an insect whole brain emulation, it could take something on the order of 20 years for that to occur if we play our cards right, uh, at least to the to the degree that it would be accurate enough to recapitulate insect behavior by uh, addressing the uh, by, by using first principles uh, biophysical models, um, when it comes to human whole brain emulations, it could take hundreds of years, maybe 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 150 years, something along those those lines. Of course, I could be wildly off. It could be much longer or shorter. But uh, I definitely think that it's a possibility that we need to start thinking about, and I think it's an exciting possibility. However, my current research is actually in in more uh, biotechnology, synthetic biology related areas than neuroelectronics, and so um, I, I, I'd like to get to some of that at some point here as well. But uh, for now, I'll wrap up with this section and just say that I'm I am very excited about the future of how synthetic biology may be able to help develop tools for addressing some of these challenges in neuroscience. Well, fantastic. So there was rather a lot there. I, I do want to, to briefly stick with the topic of whole brain emulation because years ago I read your paper on insect brain emulation and I thought it was very fascinating and it's, it's a pretty interesting lens into how we might advance this goal of eventually emulating whole brains in humans. And I wanted to ask you why or whether you think that is a viable way to achieve human level artificial intelligence as against building de novo algorithms or something, a genetic algorithm that, that reaches that level through successive iterations and evolution. Um, because there's a longstanding controversy in artificial intelligence over whether or not that's the right way to do it. So uh, we, we didn't approach the task of building airplanes by trying to build one that would fool other birds that are in the air. And so, I wonder if you might comment on whether or not intelligence is similar in that way, or if it's just low-hanging fruit. I think that there, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think that the, the nature of developing these types of technologies is complex. And, the, if we, and, and there, there are multiple routes to the, way to, to the finish line. Uh, so if we were to develop artificial intelligence in an entirely de novo way, there may be possibilities for doing that. I'm definitely not an expert in artificial intelligence, uh, so I can't really comment on the 
technical details of that, but I would imagine that there would be some potential routes towards doing that in a more uh, separate way from neuroscientific inquiry. However, I do think that if we are to develop artificial intelligence, uh, it is likely that the best route will be a synthesis, a synthesis of both neuroscience and of, uh, of artificial design. And so I think that the, the two areas will begin to inform each other more and more in the coming years. They already have, but I think it's going to continue to grow. The neuroscience may serve as a foundation for artificial intelligence that is application specific. So if you're looking for applications in things that are related to the human condition, related to human mental health, related to human diseases, things like that, I, I do think that there is going to be a fair amount of, um, fair amount of, of, of interest in developing artificial intelligence that is more heavily more heavily uh, geared towards mimicking biophysical principles and connectivity of uh, biological neural tissue. Uh, however, I do think that there's also going to be sort of a a branch of artificial intelligence, and 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 again, I think there already is to some degree, which is very much uh, very much application specific for other things. Uh, and this branch may be a more de novo approach to artificial intelligence. It may be, it may generate things that are more like savants, uh, some type of in, in, in intellectual construct which is capable of a performing a certain task very effectively, but not, but not necessarily uh, exhibiting the agility and flexibility that we come to associate with biological intelligence. So. I think that these branches may eventually begin to grow together. We may begin to see less and less distinction between these these separate paths. But for now, I think that there's going to be sort of a uh, an outburst of different 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 ways of approaching the problem that will eventually come together and give us perhaps a, a handful of different approaches to AGI, artificial general intelligence. Fantastic. You mentioned that there are a number of kind of thorny philosophical issues that go with this territory. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how you can distinguish a physical system that is conscious from one that's not. We, we don't have a meter we can wave over it. So how is it that we go about testing something for the possibility of being conscious and then bringing to bear the ethical considerations that we have and how we should treat it and what rights it should be granted? That's an excellent question. And, and I definitely have thought about this a fair amount. Um, so... I'll start with the testing because this is a very, very challenging thing. Um, people don't really, at this point, have a whole lot of routes towards towards determining whether consciousness is associated with some system that they want to examine. And I, I definitely think that it is challenging. However, I have had some ideas for uh, ways of potentially, at least partially, uh, gaining quantitative ev evidence of the consciousness of a artificial system. And uh, I'll, I'll get to my personal philosophy on consciousness after this, but uh, the I think that the best way to test whether an artificial system, some substrate, be it a classical co computational system which uses digital logic and is emulating a brain using 
multi-compartmental Hodgkin-Huxley type models, or whether it's some sort of advanced computational system that uses memristors and some kind of neuromorphic alternative circuit architecture. Uh, regardless of the substrate, I think that they're, the best way to test for consciousness is to incorporate an implant uh, into, into, into a human being and to ask the human if they are experiencing some sort of conscious experience that's associated with the type of processing that the implant is doing. And there's actually some interesting research on this already. Uh, uh, Theodore Berger, uh, or Berger is working on a hippocampal prosthesis, which has already undergone some clinical testing and has shown some success in restoring memory in humans, uh, in addition to animal models previously. And I think that this is perhaps our best indication yet that it is possible for a uh, synthetic system to take on uh, to take on consciousness. However, uh, there is there there still are some confounding factors. One might say, well, this system is simply stimulating this part of the brain and leading to consciousness in uh, in 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 the sense that it's an indirect form of experience. Uh, in that it's interacting with the wetware, the hardware is interacting with the wetware and causing the wetware to have an experience. It's not that the hardware itself is having an experience, but uh, I do think that there may be ways to more closely interweave uh, electronics with neural tissue. There's a lot of research into nanotechnology-based neural interfaces, and the deeper we go into developing these types of electronics that are these types of electronics and these types of interfaces that are able to uh, more seamlessly integrate with neural tissue, uh, I think the more we'll have good evidence for uh, whether or not a certain system is able to experience consciousness. However, um, or not however, actually, uh, so I'll move on now to my, uh, to sort of my personal take on what consciousness is. Um, and I want to preface this with the um, note that it is entirely speculative, and I do have some information. I do have reason to believe it in that there is I I've made deductions and so on and so forth, but I don't have hard data on this, and so I'm not going to say that I have solved the secret of consciousness simply by uh, doing armchair philosophy. So. Uh, but without further ado, I think that panpsychism is actually a reasonably likely explanation for the uh, existence of consciousness in the universe. I think that their consciousness is likely a material phenomenon, which is inseparable from the material uh, events in the universe. It is something that is intrinsic to matter, similar to mass or charge. And it is something that can be associated with systems uh, in in the same way that a cloud of electrons may be may exhibit some certain charge pattern, some charge distribution in three dimensions. A cloud of uh, matter may also exhibit some sort of fundamental conscious property. And I don't. I'm not saying that we can necessarily explain this any more than we can explain mass or charge. But I do think that consciousness exists in the physical universe because, to the best of our knowledge, the physical universe is all that there is. 
um, if something was not physical and it existed, it would be physical by definition, at least in my opinion. And so I think that the most likely explanation for consciousness is that it's not some separate dual dualistic uh, entity that exists in some dimension outside the universe and becomes tied to uh, physical objects. It actually is physical objects. It is something that is an intrinsic part of physical objects, and therefore everything is conscious, um, at least to some degree. Now, of course, something like a rock might have a very, very primitive level of consciousness that we wouldn't really recognize as consciousness in the sense that we don't really we don't really think of that primitive of a level of experience as being as being similar to our own but it still would have some primitive level of experience and the way that this might happen just to illustrate is that let's say that one side of the rock is being hit by a ray of sunlight and this is exciting some of the uh, atomic lattices in the rock um, and then the the um, energy propagates through the rock there are heterogeneities in the rock structure and these heterogeneities precisely determine where the heat diffuses uh, and then uh, and then on the shady side of the rock the heat will come out of the other end of the rock in this shade and it will come out in a distribution which is precisely determined by the rock's internal structure. This would be the parallel to a brain. And of course, as mentioned, the rock is very primitive, but it's still doing information processing. It's still a physical part of the universe. And therefore, I think that it may exhibit some sort of conscious experience. So there are a couple of different things that I want to grapple with there and what you just laid out. So you claim that consciousness is a constituent part of the universe all the way down, right? So even something like an electron or a quark would have a very primitive form of consciousness. In your rock example, it sounded like you were laying some of the explanatory burden on the existence of consciousness on the information processing happening as heat diffuses throughout the rock. So I, I wonder if it's actually the case that consciousness is a constituent part of the universe or if it emerges from some kind of information processing, however simplistic. C could you be a little bit more specific on that point? Yes, so I think that there is definitely a case to be made for emergence of uh, conscious experiences from the interaction of more fundamental constituents. I do think that there is there is some sort of uh, quanta, uh, or at the very least, some sort of um, uh, level of consciousness associated even with very, very simple systems, perhaps even subatomic systems. But uh, the, but yes, I do think that consciousness begins to gain more and more complex properties, more and more complex flavors, shall we say, as more systems interact. Uh, going back to the charge cloud example, uh, if you have a bunch of point charges arrayed in some 3D configuration, uh, the the overall um, the overall geometry of the of the the electric field is going to be the overall geometry of the electric field is going to be um, more complex than the geometry of a single point charge's electric field, which would just be a sphere. Uh, that decreases in intensity as distance uh, or with radius. Um, and so if you think about it like that, I think that it's sort of both. I think that it's both that 
uh, more complex conscious experiences emerge out of the interaction of many constituent parts, and that there is some way that consciousness is identical to certain physical matter at a fundamental level. So I'm, I'm curious if it's the case that human consciousness emerges out of the information processing of the brain, why I am not able to introspect on some of the experiences of the more primitive parts of that system? Like, why do I not know what my neurons feel? Or even that neurons are involved in this at all? I mean, it's it, it took thousands of years for us to discover that there's a connection between the squishy matter in the brain and, and the experiences people have. So it's just not clear to me why the access would be so one-sided. Why can consciousness not feel the system it's operating out of if consciousness extends all the way down to the most fundamental parts of all of it. I think that that's a matter of information transfer. So uh, one argument you could make against panpsychism would be that even though the cerebellum is part of your brain, you don't really experience the things going on in your cerebellum. And, uh, and, and then by in a more dramatic example, you don't experience the experiences of the frog sitting next to you. So um, I think that the reason for that is simply because uh, there are certain there are certain ways that information gets transferred around. There's a flow of information, and if a copy of some representation of a of of the environment or of an experience, a memory, etc., gets transferred uh, across the bridge between two subsystems, then the subsystems may become sort of linked in a way, and they may recognize each other in the sense that they are they are somehow communicating. However, uh, there is a limited, um, while the cerebellum does communicate with the rest of the body, it does so in, or the rest of the brain, it does so in a, uh, in a way that may be uh, indirect enough that we don't get most of what what the cerebellum is actually feeling, shall we say. So the cerebellum might be having its own sensations and experiences, and it's only transmitting a small part of that to the part of our brain which is able to, uh, which is sort of projecting out speech and talking to other people and so on and so forth. Um, now, again, note that this is very speculative. Uh, I, I, I certainly don't have um, uh, a whole lot of empirical data to back this up, but this is something that I, I think is a reasonable possibility for why we, why we identify as, as existing only as a certain subsystem and not as all the systems together. Are, are you a fan of the, the work that Elon Musk is doing on Neuralink? And uh, uh, on the scale of how early adopter you are, would you be ready to stand up and raise your hand and say, yeah, you can try it on me anytime soon? I think that that is a very interesting question. And yes, I am a fan of Neuralink. Uh, I think that it's giving the publicity to neurotechnology that we, we kind of need for neurotechnology to advance as a field. Um, and I think that it's doing a lot of good in that sense. It also is raising some interesting questions uh, among the public, and um, that can be interpreted as either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your perspective. But um, Neuralink is, uh, in my opinion, it's not the only solution. I think that it is one solution that is 
potentially uh, useful and may lead to some medically useful devices. I'm not sure if it's necessarily going to be the end all when it comes to uh, bringing together biology and technology beyond the medical context. Because Neuralink is, is, despite the elegance of their surgical robot, um, it's a very, it's a very invasive way of uh, implanting uh, uh, of implanting these these types of um, brain computer interfaces. And so, I actually probably wouldn't, at least not until it was very well demonstrated that it would exhibit safety. Uh, I probably would not be an early adopter of Neuralink itself. Um, I would be more interested in some of the work being done by Charles Lieber if it was to advance to a certain level, uh, which is actually uh, injectable electronics, a injectable mesh of uh, electrodes and uh, polymers is actually can actually be delivered by a syringe into the brains of animal models at this point. And um, this type of injectable electronics, is significantly less invasive. Uh, the mesh then expands uh, and covers uh, whatever whatever surface area of the brain that it needs to, and then it can be uh, used uh, for for various neuroelectronic interfacing. And so, while that technology is less advanced in the industrial sector, I think that if it was to reach a similar level that Neuralink currently is occupying, I think that I would be much more likely to adopt something like that in the nearer future than Neuralink itself. We could do this all day, but I do want to dedicate some space to your academic and uh, private sector research. So your life is divided up between the biomedical engineering graduate study program that you're undertaking at Washington University, and you're also the lead scientist at Conduit Computing. So why don't we just, I don't know, let's just start with the graduate school. Why don't you tell us what you're doing in bio biomedical engineering and what are the applications you see coming out of that? Great. So at Washington University in St. Louis, I am currently uh, in a laboratory which is working on adenoviral gene therapy. And I came to this laboratory with uh, a new idea, as I typically do, um, in that I wanted to uh, develop some way of protecting the uh, of protecting viral vectors for gene therapy from inducing toxic immune responses. And uh, this is a sort of an essential part of gene therapy because even the most, uh, even the least immunogenic viral vectors still tend to induce uh, a fair amount of immune responses, which can get in the way of the gene therapy and cause toxic side effects. Uh, this is a problem if you want to make gene therapy something that can be more widespread and something that can be uh, have a sort of a platform for further applications down the road. Now, um, adenoviral gene therapy is interesting because it's not as uh, it's not as advanced in the industrial sector as adeno-associated virus uh, as a vector, but uh, this this type of gene therapy actually may exhibit greater promise for CRISPR-mediated uh, editing of the human genome, which could lead to a whole panoply of possibilities. Um, however, adenovirus is, although it may be better suited to carrying CRISPR systems, it is uh, unfortunately highly immunogenic, even compared to other viral vectors that are typically used. 
So what I'm doing is I'm developing a way of creating a dynamic uh, nanostructured uh, shell around the adenovirus, which will allow it to expose just the tips of its spike fibers, which uh, allow it to interact with cellular receptors, but will cover most of the immunogenic surface. This shell also will have, uh, hopefully, will, will have the property of being able to disassemble upon being endocytosized by cells, which basically means once it's taken up into a cell, it will automatically fall apart, allowing the adenovirus to be trafficked to the nucleus and to deliver its genetic material. This is um, this platform. I'm not going to say exactly how I'm doing it uh, for IP reasons, but I'm just describing sort of how it's constructed. Uh, I am using a biologically derived system to accomplish this sort of nanostructured dynamic uh, shell. And so that goes back to the theme of synthetic biology in that I'm, I'm always using these biological, uh, these biological structures in, and integrating them into synthetic systems in order to uh, achieve aims in the biomedical or biotechnological sectors. And so I'm really excited about this. Uh, this, of course, is still an early stage project. I actually just started working on it uh, in uh, January. And so um, I, I should note that I'm still in the early stages of it, but I definitely think it has a lot of promise. And if I'm able to, if I'm able to create this, this nanotechnological uh, slash synthetic biology delivery system for adenovirus, which will sort of supplement the adenovirus itself in that it will mitigate the immunogenicity of the adenovirus. I think that that could serve as a platform for allowing uh, more extensive genetic engineering in humans down the road. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So you said you can't get too much into the manufacturing of it, which was the next question I was going to ask you. So in terms of applications, what could this payload delivery system enable for genetic engineering or anything else? Once again, in the near term, the, there, there's both a near term and a far term here. So in the near term, it could address uh, a variety of inherited diseases, uh, potentially cancers, um, and uh, potentially even a few, uh, a, a few diseases that are, um, that are essentially easy to treat by a simple genetic modifications. Um, so this is the near term. So the, it, could, it could address a variety of medical concerns where the disease in question has one gene that's wrong or a few genes that are wrong and need to be essentially fixed by the delivery of adenoviral vectors. It could also help to improve the delivery of adenoviral vectors to cancerous tissue. And uh, this is an area called oncolytic gene therapy in which, uh, in which a viral vector delivers genes specifically to cancer, which can uh, basically destroy the cancer in a targeted fashion. And so this could help with, uh, this could help with that kind of, that kind of uh, medical application in the short term. Um, either uh, cancer or uh, fairly simple genetic diseases. Um, in the longer term, I have hopes that there may be sort of an expansion of possibilities. Um, I think that there, uh, the gene editing of adult humans would be, although probably still somewhat ethically controversial, 
I think that it would be easier to easier to gain public acceptance of than, say, germline gene therapy. Uh, and it would also come with less ethical complications in general. Um, and I think that there could be a really wide array of different possibilities for this, from uh, allowing people to gain sort of uh, uh, sort of abilities that they might not otherwise have in the sense of things like uh, oxygen uh, be, being being able to uh, visit places that they might not otherwise be able to visit because of hypoxia. Um, I'm essentially alluding to the idea that uh, one might have increased oxygen storage capacity in erythrocytes, something along those lines, uh, to potentially even intelligence enhancement. Um, and then one area that I'm particularly interested in is the uh, is engineered astronauts, um, because I'm I'm although I, I I am very excited about the uh, possibilities for medicine that synthetic biology will bring in the short term. I think that the long-term future of humanity is something that we really need to place a greater priority on because humanity has a great deal of potential and I do not want to see us die out before we can realize that potential. And so in order to preserve the human species, I, I want to see uh, ways of uh, uh, us exploring other worlds, colonizing other worlds, and this could be uh, the the process of this could be made easier and faster, cheaper, etc. by um, by by introducing genetic modifications to astronauts and or space colonists, if you will, uh, who are going to go to space. Things like radiation resistance, uh, not not needing a, a, as frequent of food, um, potentially better metabolism, etc. Um, things like uh, uh, better tolerance for hypoxic conditions could actually be useful in space as well, um, and uh, so on and so forth. Um, and, and, and perhaps even uh, psychological uh, modifications, such as things that may allow, uh, that, that may also have medical applications, um, allowing people to deal with anxiety or prolonged periods of uh, travel more easily in space. And so I'm, I'm especially excited about these long-term possibilities. For now, I'm satisfied to be working on platforms which may lead to such possibilities in the future. But I definitely am interested in branching out later on. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of talk about CRISPR in the news lately, and uh, and I'm I'm sure that that's um, very slanted towards. Um, just uh, some narrow aspects of, of the science as it's being developed here. But as we, I'm, I, the way I've been thinking about this is over the, the coming few years, uh, some lady that's pregnant will have the opportunity to go and see a geneticist. Um, and, and, and we've been thinking about designer babies for a while. And, and for most people, that brings up things like hair color and eye color and whether they have dimples or freckles and things like that. But there's, there's a lot more depth to that. Um, and over time, being able to design somebody that's durable enough to survive space travel or durable enough to, um, uh, to live in Siberia or uh, some of the harsher regions on the planet here, even Antarctica, 
um, that so we would essentially be curing all of the problems a baby has before it's born. Uh, at least that would be the goal. Uh, although I'm sure we'll get some problems we never understood that we ever had before. And, and then this, this leads to giving birth to super babies that become superhumans. And over time, these superhumans then will become kind of a different class of human. Uh, uh, they're bigger, faster, stronger, smarter than anybody else. Uh, greater life expectancy. Uh, which leads to all kinds of other social issues, having two two classes of humans, so to speak. Um, but but does is is this really the pathway to transhumanism? In your mind, is is this opening the doors for that to happen? I mean, this has been a prediction for quite a while, 2029 to 2045, somewhere in that time frame. Um, and I don't know how accurate any of that is and what exactly transhuman looks like, but is this the pathway to getting there? I think that there are, as with um, what I was discussing earlier, I think there are multiple possibilities and there will be multiple pathways. Uh, so you, you did bring up very good points with regards to the challenges of germline genome editing and uh, there being potential stratification of different classes. And I think that that's something that, although I think that overall germline genome edit engineering may have beneficial effects uh, in, in the net sense, I do think that we're going to have to, in order to maximize on the beneficial effects and minimize the negative effects, we're going to have to approach it carefully. And uh, some of this will, will sort of involve a shift in societal mindset on things like uh, sort of innate potential, uh, what gives a person value, what makes a person, what makes a person somebody to be respected, and so on and so forth. And I think this actually will raise some interesting questions that are related to things that even now we face, because currently there's there's sort of a a bit of a, an unfortunate way that people look at each other in that. They'll see somebody in a very glamorous position, and they'll think of that person as being inherently more valuable than somebody who is in a less glamorous position. So say a um, politician versus a janitor, uh, the politician being more glamorous, of course. And, um, uh, and, and But really, I mean, both are human. Uh, and, and perhaps one has uh, had a variety of advantages, um, perhaps some innate, some environmental, and, uh, and, and things have just played out the way they've played out. And I think it's very important to recognize that everyone is human. Um, even people who are genetically different from us uh, are human. Uh, and even if we're radically genetically different, there would still be enough uh, of a, a rootedness in the human that we really shouldn't consider one person as inherently more valuable than another simply because that person possesses certain talents, um, certain genetic, genetic, perhaps genetically conferred talents, perhaps talents conferred by uh, opportunities in education, etc. Um, because, I mean, I know we're discussing transhumans uh, here, but 
placing transhumans under the broader umbrella of human or human-like. We're all human or human-like. Yeah, the, the, last, the last time I was at a Lamborghini dealership, uh, I got mad at them because they were discriminating against poor people. I didn't mm. think that was fair. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, there's sort of a difference in, in what you're saying, which is the opportunity to obtain some sort of material gain versus how an individual is regarded by society. Um, because I think that, I think that there's, while there, there, there are shades of gray, I think that there's sort of a broad, a broad cutoff um, between uh, that, that one can sort of artificially introduce between what is considered a um, an opportunity to do something and what is considered an inherent aspect of a person. Um, and I think that we really have to start to redefine these things and start to have conversations around these things in that we need to know we need to know that people are not defined necessarily solely by by their glamour. Um, I do think that it is worthwhile to uh, put some value on people's uh, on, on what people are doing, how they're how they're living their lives, what what they're doing to make the lives of others better. But I don't think that we should uh, discriminate based on we, we shouldn't discriminate how people receive love, how people receive respect as human beings. Um, we should we should try to keep our mindset on the idea that all people are contributing members of a system, a great and complex system, which is beyond that which any human or even superhuman can really control in its entirety. And each person is an integral part of this system. And so I, I guess the point that I'm getting at is that people deserve love and respect regardless of of what they can and are doing. Uh, but the uh, it, but at the same time, it is important to value what people are doing. Um, but there is there is sort of this complex line between uh, is somebody there? There's a there's a way of sort of establishing an inherent baseline that people deserve as uh, deserve as a level of love and respect that I think that everyone should assume for everyone else. And uh, and sure, there there can be some glamorous things that are sort of bonus, and that that should be applauded. But when it really comes down to the core of being a person, a person is a person. Yeah, so I, I think what you're pointing at economically is what's known as the law of comparative advantage, which is that we're, we're better off specializing, even if some of it, like even if a person were better at everything across the board, there's, there's some sort of superhuman, it still makes sense for them to specialize in certain things and for everyone else to contribute where they can. And thereby, we are all sort of enriched by mutually dividing up the labor, engaging in specialization, and then trading the fruits of our efforts. Uh, I, I am sort of curious as to how you would tackle the issue of one strata of human breaking away from the others. Uh, even if it's the case that those superhumans believe that 
everyone deserves love and respect at a certain point when the gap gets big enough, it's more like the love and respect you would feel for, you know, a pet that you really like as opposed to a peer or somebody that can meaningfully contribute. Uh, and, And I don't mean somebody with slight tweaks to their baseline abilities. I mean, someone that's uploaded into a computer and running thousands of times faster than, than a baseline human. So do you have any concerns over how that dynamic might play out? I do have some concerns over that. Um, I think that overall, uh, one of the benefits of gradual advancement, and by gradual, I don't mean that it's not happening very fast, but I mean that it's not happening instantaneously. Uh, one of the benefits of, shall we say, non-instantaneous advancement is that these things don't happen in a bubble. Uh, they happen incrementally. Um, and sure, some increments are bigger than others. but uh, the the way that a advancement would would sort of uh, the the way that that human enhancements will likely evolve over time is not going to be a single giant jump which leaves everyone else in the dust. It's going to be a series of steps that are um, sort of bringing bringing little bits and pieces together, uh, making making one part better, making another part better. Some people might not have access to it initially, but then uh, over time, more and more access will happen. Um, and and there will be less of a gap because everyone's going to be sort of climbing these steps together, some slightly slower than others, but uh, we're all sort of scaling the pyramid, shall we say. And I think that this, uh, this sort of incremental um, or semi-incremental advancement will actually serve as a... a factor which mitigates the the uh, stratification which may happen. That said, I do think that the stratification is a very real concern, and I think that it could lead to some bad things if we don't handle it correctly, which is why I do advocate for uh, a lot of different people being involved in these types of uh, discussions, and I advocate for these things being thought about very carefully. So one sort of interesting ethical conundrum that comes out of this it is related to what you just said about all of us climbing the pyramid together. And the question is, what if we're not all climbing the pyramid together? Like what, what if we have the opportunity to enhance a person, but they turn it down or we know that there's a genetic defect in the germline that we could fix. Like when is it appropriate to just let a person grow up with, with a malady that could have been fixed in utero, but we didn't. Um, I, I just wonder if eventually we might not come around to the position that it's not right to ever let such things persist. Uh, but then there are some dangers with consent of the parents, for example, or even consent of an adult. Like, I mean, w- when do you say that you are allowed to carry this, this uh, disability with you forever if it's become a core part of your identity? And I mean, w- we see this conversation kind of happening with respect to, to certain disabilities people have now. Like, the deaf community is very... Uh, tight knit and they, they have a cu- culture kind of a, uh, their own and their, their own way of speaking. And, and it can become integral to a person's identity such that they will refuse any attempts uh, to, to put in a cochlear implant that would allow them to hear. And their parents, the deaf parents might not let this happen for their children. And, they, and there are some genuinely difficult questions around that because I mean, viewed from one perspective, it's clearly a disability, but you know, I mean, if, if it's central to the way you view yourself, if you're embedded in this culture, if it's kind of part of your whole identity, then it's not clear to me that excising it is the right thing to do. How, how do you 
think about that sort of thing? I think that the when it comes to that sort of thing, uh, I think that it should be voluntary. Um, and, and by voluntary, I'm including voluntary on the part of the parents who are embedded in the culture, um, uh, if it's germline. And if it's uh, something that's a decision being made by an adult, then it should be the voluntary on the part of the adult. Um, the, with regards to whether this will lead to us not all climbing the pyramid together, uh, I think that there is going to be some of that, but I think that the people who choose to 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 turn down certain enhancements, I think that those people will, will we will need to be careful to still establish a mutual relationship with those people that is respectful and um, does not lead to sort of uh, looking down on them. But I think that there will be some people who turn down some enhancements, some people who turn out down all enhancements. And I think that over time there's going to be, uh, in contrast to what some have suggested, I think there's going to be an increase in the diversification of the human species and the post-human species. Because these things could lead to a lot of different lines of change in a lot of different ways. Not all of them will be compatible. And, uh, and so there will be sort of this explosion of diversity, uh, which, which may lead to a lot of interesting situations. But I think overall, uh, not having simply two, uh, shall we say, um, groups are, would actually be beneficial because if it's, if it's the enhanced versus the unenhanced, that's, that would create a more problematic dynamic than the hundred different possibilities or thousands of different possibilities or more. Uh, and then the people who choose not to be enhanced are simply one of the many possibilities. And so I think that that, uh, and I think that that, that in some ways echoes our biological evolution in that the biological world is very adaptable. It is very diverse. And there are a lot of different niches that different biological adaptations can fit into. And so um, I think that, I think that the, when it comes to genetic enhancement, the diversification may be a key player in, uh, making these things work in a way that is sort of dynamic and, uh, and, and ever changing and sort of allows for people to discover identity and to, um, explore identity in ways that they might not otherwise have been able to, while simultaneously not not as much alienating those who choose to pursue a different path. So um, there's there's a lot of things that are being worked on right now, and it, we always get into this issue of whether it'll ever be possible or not. But when it comes to things like if somebody has their leg cut off, regrowing that leg, like some of the lizards do right now. Um, do you think that's possible and how long away do you think that will be? I do think that that is definitely possible. Um, and I think that that kind of thing uh, is definitely not entirely far off. Uh, I think on the scale of decades, certainly at the, at the most. Um, of course, there's always the possibility that, uh, that there might be things that get in the way, but uh, there's already a lot of efforts to develop uh, regrown organs for internal organs that may be able to uh, replace replace failed organs or damaged organs. 
And so uh, tissue engineering is really advancing quite quickly. And I think that uh, when it comes to creating replacement parts, there there's definitely going to be a lot of uh, emerging technologies in the coming years that are very exciting. Uh, now, tissue engineering is not my central field, of course, but I do think that uh, from what I've seen and what I've read in the literature, uh, that this is definitely a real possibility that within the next uh, decade or two, we might start seeing replacement parts for uh, pieces of the human body. So do you see human aging as being something that's curable? And how long, how long off is that? So that brings up a very interesting point, because I think that human aging, yes, I think that it is something that is likely to be, if not curable, at the very least, uh, highly mitigatable. Uh, and uh, I, I think that the how far off that is kind of depends on it. So what degree you're going to be mitigating it. Um, if we're talking about uh, fairly minor life extension, five to 10 years, I mean, that, that could be within our reach in, in the next few years even, um, depending on the person. However, that may experience a great deal of noise and therefore it might not be the most reliable way um, to extend one's life. Uh, I know that there are certain drugs that have been shown to have uh, beneficial effects in animal models at least uh, and in, 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 in helping with aging related uh, uh, symptoms and alleviating them thereby uh, making the animals more robust. But uh, when it comes to really dramatic extensions of, of, of life's life expectancy, um, I think that that is something that, that may or may not come uh, in a reasonable time frame. Uh, I think that it really kind of depends on how we approach it, how much funding gets pour in, pour, poured into it. And this actually brings up sort of a more general point that I think is going to be very pertinent uh, in that if we want to re-engineer the human body, I think that we're going to have to really look at the synthesis between a lot of different fields and we're going to have to systematically uh, unite them in such a way that they're able to deconstruct a very complex system, the human body, and uh, identify how it works in a more holistic manner uh, so that we can, we can better uh, approach predictive engineering of the human body and have models that will be able to predict what may happen in a much more uh, accurate fashion than they would be otherwise. So this is actually something that I wrote about on my blog um, in a essay on the future of biotechnology. And I think that there's going to be sort of a confluence of hardware, software, and wetware, uh, or an experiment, um, and at least in the study of systems biology, which is sort of the, the way of in a much more uh, high throughput manner, dissecting biological systems uh, and, and, and understanding how they all, how all the different parts fit together. And so in order for systems biology to attack the problem of the human body, uh, at least in the manner which would be sufficient to begin to really make dramatic, uh, dramatic strides in the engineering of the human body uh, in, in ways that would do things like extend the lifespan dramatically. I think that we're going to have to, we're going to, and I think we're already on on the way to this. But I I I I, I definitely think we're going to have to capital capitalize upon these things. Um, there's going to be hopefully a a 
great increase in the prevalence of high throughput experimental ways of collecting data. So collecting tons and tons of data. Um, and this is the first component. Uh, things like spatial, and this is multidimensional data too that we're going to need because we're going to need to simultaneously collect data on many different aspects of a tissue or system at once in order to make, uh, make correlations between the functional, uh, the functional outcomes that may occur between those different subcomponents. Uh, spatial transcriptomics is a technology which allows for the mapping of RNAs in a tissue or cell uh, in a fashion that is very high throughput, uh, high resolution in many cases, and is able to uh, simultaneously establish spatial context, morphology, uh, potentially even uh, there are ways of integrating it with uh, ways of, of seeing where proteins are as well. Um, and it's just this really versatile technology. And so things like that, um, I mean, that's just one example, but uh, being able to collect really high dimensional, uh, really high throughput data on, on, uh, on cells, tissues, organs, et cetera, uh, is going to be sort of the first key step in, in understanding how, how the body works in mammalian systems and human systems uh, in a way that will allow us to engineer it down the road. The next step is going to be, what do we do with all that data? Because it's going to be a lot of data. It's not going to be something that you can just look at and see, oh, this is how it works. Um, we're going to need uh, to take advantage of sort of the revolution in weak artificial intelligence uh, that is not like human-like artificial intelligence, but artificial intelligence, which is uh, very good at learning patterns and uh, from data. And we're going to we're going to want to take advantage of the incredible ability for AI to learn patterns from data, and we're going to want to develop a lot of tools and methodologies to adapt that to these vast vast amounts of biological data. Then after we after we extract insights from biological data using these artificial intelligence tools, uh, there's going to be um, uh, the, and other tools as well, but AI is probably going to be one of the central ones, particularly machine learning, but also um, other areas. Uh, I think that we're going to we're going to want to take advantage of the uh, what's called integrative simulations. Um, and integrative simulations are when you try to reconstruct a system in silico in as much detail as you can, and then uh, to to once you have that system, a, a virtual model of that system in silico built from uh, physical principles, uh, predict what's going to happen. And this is this can happen at different scales, different levels of detail in the physical principles you're drawing from. But um, one one way you can do it is mo called molecular dynamics simulation, and that's actually something that I'm working on in uh, SARS-CoV-2 research at Conduit. Um, molecular dynamics si simulation allows you to predict the forces between atoms and how they're going to wiggle around and interact with each other. And uh, there are obviously some limitations to this, but uh, we're getting better and better at it. There's also um, kinetic simulations, which uh, draw from rates uh, between, between reactions. And uh, these types of simulations could allow for the, uh, the modeling of much more, much larger systems than a molecular dynamics simulation could. And so the point with these examples is that 
we're trying to establish ways of predicting how biological systems will behave in a more reliable manner than we currently can. And this will require first the data, then the insights, then the models, and underlying this, uh, underlying the software component is going to be uh, computational hardware. And uh, there's going to be a lot of advances coming in that um, in areas ranging from neuromorphic computing to quantum computing to simple scaling up of classical computing. Uh, and and I, I mean, I'm already seeing a lot of uh, a lot of exciting developments there. Um, I can't say that I'm necessarily uh, uh, well versed in the uh, hardware area, but I do I do sort of have a bird's eye picture of it, and I can see a lot of uh, developments coming there that uh, seem very promising and may support a lot of the uh, software which will be necessary to interpret and model biological systems such that they can be engineered later on. So we went down this whole fork in the conversation asking you about your work in grad school. So why don't we circle back around and talk about what you're doing with industry, specifically with conduit computing, which involves trying to model the dynamics of SARS-CoV-2 and the way it evolves. So can you just tell us a little bit about what that's like? You're the lead scientist there. What does that role entail? What's your day-to-day -day research involve? Just kind of paint a picture for us. Yeah, so uh, at Conduit, uh, where I'm lead scientist, I'm I'm doing some very exciting work on uh, coronavirus, and there's sort of two different projects that I'm working on, uh, and one of them is is significantly uh, farther down the road. Uh, the second one is earlier stage, but also very exciting. And I'll start with the first one, which is what you mentioned, uh, the simulation of sort of how the coronavirus comes together. And um, the way that this, uh, basically what we're doing there is uh, we're simulating, using molecular dynamics simulations, as I described previously, we're simulating the movement of proteins that are encoded by the coronavirus, uh, structural proteins in the membrane of one of the intracellular organelles that the coronavirus buds into. Basically, what we're doing is we're simulating a small part of a process called envelope assembly which is how the coronavirus forms more of itself, uh, specifically in the sense of uh, forming the spherical particles that you see in the images of the coronavirus. And uh, this, is, this entails interactions between the proteins and between the proteins and the membrane of what's called the ER-Golgi intermediate compartment, which is the uh, intracellular organelle that I mentioned. The way that it works is that the coronavirus pushes that membrane up and around its genome and then uh, forms little droplets that be later become coronavirus particles. Uh, and the way that it induces membrane curvature involves the M and the E protein, uh, which are uh, proteins uh, that are, are a part of the, the coronavirus that it, it synthesizes uh, as it infects the cell. Um, and then these proteins interact uh, with each other and with the membrane to induce that curvature and make more coronavirus. Why, why, is, the, why is the curvature a bad thing? You, what, what does that mean? So the curvature is how the coronavirus actually forms its particles, because uh, in order for the coronavirus to package its genome, it has to wrap the membrane around uh, the uh, RNA uh, with the N protein and all of that, um, the nucleocapsid, it has to wrap the membrane around that and uh, if it can't do that, then it can't bud, it can't form more coronavirus, and it can't go on and infect more cells. And so the, 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 
the fact that we're simulating this is is good because we're essentially trying to uh, do two things. We're trying to better understand how the coronavirus works in general um, in order to gain perhaps uh, uh, hitherto un, 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 unknown insights into how the biology of the coronavirus functions. And we're hoping to, to pave the way for new treatments which may target coronavirus envelope assembly slash budding. Um, the treatments which might target this might involve uh, interrupting the way that M and the E protein induce curvature in the membrane. And if we could somehow block how the M and the E protein induce membrane curvature, we might be able to develop better treatments for SARS-CoV-2 and other coronavirus diseases. Fantastic. I think you mentioned there was another um, project. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. The, the second project is earlier stage, but very exciting. Um, it is called Nanosplash. And it is a diagnostic, uh, saliva-based diagnostic, um, that will be able to be used at home uh, by, by, by people without the aid of a clinician uh, to detect infectious diseases, such as coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2. Um, it's going to be, essentially, you're going to be able to spit into a bottle, uh, wait for 10 minutes, transfer the cap of the bottle to the bottom and screw it on, and then wait for another 30 minutes and then if the solution in the cap turns red, it's going to indicate that there's an infection. At least that's the, the design. And I actually can talk about this because we have a provisional patent on this. Uh, essentially, the, the reason that there's a 10-minute stage and the 30-minute stage is that there are two steps that are necessary for the saliva, uh, for diagnosing infectious disease from saliva, um, at least in nanosplash. Uh, the first is basically to inactivate enzymes in the saliva that might interfere with the second step. Because the second step involves DNA-based nanotechnology, which will, um, which will be able to detect precisely the genetic material of the coronavirus or other infectious diseases. And, um, and in order for this DNA nanotechnology to work, there can't be enzymes in the saliva uh, that get put onto it that might destroy it. And so um, the, the first step, the 10-minute step, is going to be essentially a way of inactivating uh, the components of the saliva that might interfere with the second step. Then in the second step, uh, essentially there is going to be a hybridization of RNA from the coronavirus or other uh, pathogen to, um, to a DNA oligonucleotide that keeps a bead attached to the uh, attached to a solid substrate. So it's, it's essentially a ball on the chain that is uh, attached to a solid substrate in the second chamber. Once the, once the genome of the infectious agent uh, or the, the sequence from the infectious agent hybridizes to the DNA oligonucleotide, it will form a uh, DNA-RNA heteroduplex, which is basically just a fancy term for uh, DNA and RNA wrapped around each other. Um, and then an, a restriction enzyme, uh, which is present in the solution, called AVA2, will cut that, releasing the bead. The bead is also linked to an enzyme called beta-galactosidase. And so when the bead falls down to the bottom of the tube after it's cut off of the oligonucleotide linker, it will uh, catalyze the reaction of a chemical called RedGal, turning it red. Um, it will be able to catalyze this reaction many times, which will, um, it, which will essentially serve as the signal, uh, the signal amplification step. And in this way, it will show you uh, a visible to the naked eye indication that 
yes, the infectious material is present because uh, it, because the bead was popped off and went down to the bottom of the tube, and so on and so forth. Now, to establish what the current state of NanoSplash is, because obviously this is currently uh, conceptual. This is this is a uh, in the early stages, this is uh, a design, um, a design that we've we've had uh, reviewed by other scientists, and um, and and we've taken their feedback and improved it, and so on. But it's still a design. Um, currently, what Conduit is doing is we're raising funding, we're interacting with a lot of different entities, we're reaching out to investors, etc., uh, because we don't have a wet lab, um, and so in order to develop NanoSplash, we're going to need. A, a laboratory which can do the experimental work and uh, construct the system and make sure that it actually functions biochemically in the way that it should. And to do this, we're planning on partnering with a company called Avamine. Uh, now, Avamine charges a few hundred thousand dollars for their services, but uh, from from our interactions with them so far, getting quote and so on and so forth, uh, we I, I believe that there is uh, that they, they do have the capability. To make this thing a reality, um, of course, I can't guarantee with absolute certainty, but I do think that there is um, a high likelihood that Avamine, uh, with their highly skilled team of laboratory technicians, will be able to help us translate this into something that can actually work. Um, and so that's where NanoSplash currently is. And uh, I, I, of course, designed the NanoSplash system. Um, and now I'm I'm currently working at Conduit on uh, both both uh, continuing the simulation work uh, if, with the other project and sort of overseeing the computational team that's working on that. And I'm also uh, helping with some of the applications to various uh, pitch competitions uh, uh, and funding agencies, which may be able to help us get the um, the necessary funding to pursue pursue NanoSplash and make it a reality. Um, one benefit of NanoSplash that I should mention is that uh, it's it's not just COVID-19. Um, I did allude to that previously, but uh, it's something that would be able to be easily adapted to a wide array of different pathogens. So um, anything from in influenza to Pseudomonas aeruginosa, really anything that needs a signature nucleic acid in the saliva or other readily available bodily fluid, NanoSplash would be able to uh, be adapted quite easily to uh, to test for that. And potentially you could make hundreds of different versions of NanoSplash to test for hundreds of different pathogens. And so NanoSplash is really highly versatile and it will have applications that go far beyond the current pandemic. Unlike uh, many of the uh, antigen-based tests which are being developed currently, uh, which essentially you would need to redevelop the entire test every time, uh, every time you want to pursue a new pathogen because you would uh, you need to make new antibodies and make sure those antibodies were working properly. With NanoSplash, you could just change the sequence of the oligonucleotide, and hypothetically, it should work uh, to detect. Uh, it should work pretty similarly well to detect uh, whatever pathogen the sequence is complementary to. Well, that seems like a nice, hopeful note to end on. Thanks so much for being here with us today, Logan. We really appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, and uh, uh, we wish you the best on all your research. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.